Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me in conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success, and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance. My producer, Joe, has been trying to get today's guest on for months, and that conversation starts right now. Carla Harris steps into my office this week. Carla is one of the most influential women on Wall Street. She's the vice chairman, managing director, and senior client advisor at Morgan Stanley. Carla has amassed an impressive 30-plus-year career in investment banking and financial services, but also has become one of the most powerful and influential women and Black executives in the world. On top of that, she also regularly shares her advice, or Carlo's pearls of wisdom, as she calls them, in books, keynotes, and podcasts. Carla, welcome to my office. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Oh, gosh. Glad to have you. Now, one of the things I usually always wait until the end to ask is, when is the Carla Harris movie coming out? Because I feel like I feel like whoever plays you is A, going to have to have a set of pipes for lungs and B, will also win an Oscar. Well, that, that would be great. And I'll tell you, I don't know when the movie's coming out because I have a lot more content to create. <laughs> a life story that's always ever evolving. Love to hear it. Well, Carla, as you know, we talk about the uh, mechanics of success and failure and high performance and what that looks like on this podcast. And I've heard you say before that, If you consider yourself a leader in the 21st century, Mm -hmm. you must be comfortable taking risks, which of Mm -hmm. course is right in my wheelhouse. When did you first recognize that evolution, if you will, or that as being really a foundational element of solid leadership? Yes, I'll tell you easily, uh, Carrie, uh, over a decade, I probably said a decade and a half ago, if not two, as I started really paying attention to those who were in the leadership seat and the decisions that they were making and some that worked out well and some that didn't. But the point is what was consistent as I looked across people that I considered to be strong leaders, great leaders, exceptional leaders, they all were willing to take those risks. They all were willing to make decisions with imperfect information, and in some cases with no information, but knowing instinctively or clearly, factually, that something needed to be done. So I knew that you you really couldn't afford to play it safe if you wanted to be a great leader. Right, which also is going to take, in addition to that, this isn't about taking reckless risks, Mm -hmm. having the courage, having the courage to step up and step into that space of discomfort or uncertainty even. Yes, that's exactly right. There's no question that I give a talk, as you probably know, Carrie, on intentional leadership. I call them the pearls of intentional leadership. And at the end, I always say, while I've given you the pearls, the strand that holds all the pearls together happens to be courage because it takes courage to do each one of those pearls that I talk about in the talk. And it's no question that stepping into unknown territory takes courage. But I would argue that if you've gotten to that point where you have to make that decision, then you have to understand and embrace that you have been prepared for that moment, either through concrete experiences or through things that you've learned in in an academic or other kind of learning environment. And, and, And the last piece, is the courage to do the thing, whatever it is. Right. It's the glue. It's the glue that holds everything together. I think what 
also is a predecessor to that, if you will, though, is that you also have to have the ability to make the ask, which is something I've heard you talk about. Uh, and if you could expand on that a little bit, because I think what what we see too often is people have this idea or they want to make the ask, but they don't do it. They don't yes. take that action. Yes. And I find the greatest trepidation, Carrie, in making the ask happens when it's for your own person. I have heard many, many leaders say, oh, I don't have any problem asking for anybody else. Um, but when it comes down to them and asking for what they are due or what they should get paid or for that promotion or for that opportunity to lead, that's when there is the trepidation. So I, I tell people all the time that if, if that's the case, step out of the situation. Look at it objectively as if you are doing it for someone else until you can make the ask, because in effect, you are doing it for someone else. If you can get to that seat of leadership, if you have the ultimate authority, if you're getting rewarded accordingly, all of that's going to feed down. There's going to be a multiplier effect. And if it's not down, it's around you. So think of it as you're enabling your ability to empower somebody else or to make decisions powerfully on behalf of somebody else. But you got to start with you. I love that. But I find, and and it's been something that I've struggled with in the past, for sure. It's it's much, much easier for me to advocate for somebody else uh, than it is to, and I think generally I might be slightly above average in having that ability to take that next step, but it doesn't mean that on the inside, I don't feel uncomfortable, right? Or I don't have a fear of failure or a fear of how vulnerable is this going to make me? Mm -hmm. So how do people get over the fear of yeah. making that ask? Even maybe what is some good language that, that they could use around that? Because I think if you have the language, if you have that architecture in place, yeah. then it's almost like a checklist yeah. for success. So you say to yourself three times, I am worthy. It's just that simple. I am worthy. Because when you peel the onion, Carrie, and you say, why am I having such a hard time asking for myself? Like, what is the problem? I, I do deserve it. There's some part of you that somehow is questioning that. So you have to know that you know that you know that you are worthy. You have worked hard. You have earned it. You will do a great job. You do have confidence. You believe in yourself. All those things go into those three words, I am worthy. And the other thing that has helped me is I've said to myself, if I'm the person that is responsible for advocating for me, if I don't do it, then it will not get done, right? And I am a natural executor. So now I am leveraging my superpower, my strength. I'm a great executor. So if it's on the list, I will execute. And if I'm the one responsible for it, then I will do it. So I use all of those guardrails to support the I am worthy. And, you know, when I've had to make some of the big asks in my life, Carrie, is I have played that what if game with myself. And I'll give you one example. And I've said this a number of times, especially talking about compensation. I had a colleague say to me, probably mid-range in my career, you know, I go in every year and tell them what I want to get paid. And Carrie, I was clutching my pearls. I was like, oh, you know, what language do you use? How, how, do, you, how do you say that again? How do you, how do, you and, do that? Right, how do you do that? And so I walked away thinking, you know, I could never do that. I could not even imagine myself going into the boys and saying, this is what I want to get paid. But then I started to think to myself, 
wait a minute, Carla. Now, you know that investment bankers get paid in a range every year after your first couple of years. Then it really is around the, the firm's performance, the department's performance, and then your individual performance. And there could be differences even among people in the same class. Okay. So let's say that year, my class, my class range was between 150 and 300. And I said to myself, Carrie, Carla, suppose you don't say anything and you get paid 150,000. But suppose you say something and you get paid 300. Is your fear worth $150,000? And my answer was exactly what you're thinking, right? And I started to practice. I said, well, if I'm the one that has to do this and that is the kind of difference that we're talking about, I got to go in there and ask no matter what. So mm -hmm. I just kept practicing. Mm -hmm. And that's another trick that I tell people, practice in the mirror, hear yourself say it out loud. I deserve that promotion. I want to be captain. I want to get paid X amount of money. Just say it until you get comfortable and you will. The more you say it, it's just practice. And by the time I felt comfortable, I went in there and I had the conversation and it had the intended outcome. But the thought that it would not have happened if I did not ask on my own was compelling enough to get me in that room. Well, and I think that's such great insight and that part of that comes from not only listening to other people's stories, right? Understanding that being willing to have the, the tough conversations and, and then having to take your own personal responsibility for you have to be the one to make that ask. I think too often my experience has been, and certainly in, in not only in my time in, in the military and aviation, but in the last 20 years working, working within corporate America and with lots of different executives and leaders, is that too often people will assume or they've been told that all you have to do is perform well. Yeah. and you'll be recognized, mm -hmm. right? That your performance will speak for itself. Yeah. That's not true. No. And, and you combine that with the twisted hairball or assumption that people will say, just work hard and everything will work out as if there's a meritocracy everywhere, which there is not. Correct. Um, that can be a challenge because mm -hmm. then, then people start internalizing and saying, well, clearly I'm not worth it or they would have already rewarded me. Right. And I tell people all the time, and you know, Carrie, I speak about this as, as often as I can about the fact that there is no meritocracy, because whenever there is a human element in the evaluative equation, by definition, you just inserted some subjectivity, which queers 100% meritocracy. So I'm very clear that it's more than your performance, that it's also the relationships that you mm -hmm. have. And especially as you get more senior, Right. While in the early days of your career, you could argue that there's a larger measure of objectivity, either you put points on the board or you didn't, either you got it right or you didn't. But as you get more senior, then there is an assumption of equity. And as I like to say, you know, as well as I do, that that assumption of equity is flawed because Carrie is not Joe is not Carla, but they say, oh, they're all pretty good. Well, when that happens, then that gives leverage to the person that has the better relationships in the room where decisions are being made, in that room where you are not present. And all of the critical decisions about your career are made in a room where you are not present. Your compensation, your promotions, the assignments that you receive, all in a room where you are not present. So somebody has to carry your paper, as I like to call it. Somebody needs to be the sponsor. So I'm also clear that while your performance might get your name on a short list, 
that's being discussed in that room. But when your name is called, if you do not have enough relationships in that room where somebody will say, oh yes, Carrie, she's outstanding. Oh, Joe, he's our best created person. If he can't figure it out, nobody else can. If those kinds of comments, which by the way, are not quantitative, all qualitative. So if those kind of comments can't be made, then they go to the next name on the list and it has nothing, zero, to do with your ability to do the job, but everything to do with whether or not somebody in that room knows you well enough, a la the relationship, to speak up on your behalf. Right. And you had a really, what what seemed to be a profound experience early on in your career, uh, where it, at one point somebody told you, you weren't tough enough mm -hmm. to do well on Wall Street. Yeah. First of all, I was shocked, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's the last thing I would have thought about, about myself. I always thought that I was tough enough, but clearly my behavior and my speech and the environment was not underscoring that part of me, or somehow I was behaving differently in this environment. So I began to walk tough, talk tough, eat tough, drink tough, use tough in my language. Because if you want to train people to think about you in a certain way, and each of us can do that, then you must have consistent behavior around those adjectives. So you must go in there and you say, well, you know, I'm tough on this, or I know that I'm no nonsense when it comes to that. And, you know, yes, I can be a tough critic, right? The more you talk about yourself like that in your environment, when you're not in the room and someone says, tell me about Carla, they can say, oh man, she's tough, right? Because your behavior has been consistent and your language has been consistent. And it doesn't mean you have to act like a witch with a bee. And a lot of people confuse that. We'll say, I, you know, if I'm tough, don't I have to act like that? Absolutely not. You can make hard decisions. You can be critical all with a smile and you don't have to mistreat or treat harshly anybody in order for that perception to be created about who you are. Do you think that's where people can get that tangled up when we talk about or have a conversation around authenticity? Yeah, and I have had to help people understand that Making sure that the perception about you in the marketplace is what you want it to be still means it has to be tied to your authenticity. Mm -hmm. I am not in any way advocating that you create a persona for work. And you will never hear me use the word brand, Carrie, because for me, the word brand means that I'm creating something right? Uh, because I'm a child of the, this marketing era that we have been in. So to say my brand sort of makes me feel like I, I've had to create something that might not be authentic. The perception that you create, those adjectives that you want people to use to describe you, I tell people, think of three adjectives that are consistent with who you really are. Think of three adjectives that are valued in your organization, where they intersect is how you must behave consistently if you want to train people to think about you in a certain way. Now, if the adjectives around who you really are are diametrically opposed to what's valued in that organization, now you need to rethink why you're in that environment. Did you make an authentic decision to go there? Or did you say, I want to go here because I want to get blah, blah? Well, there's a lot of ways to get blah, blah that do not mean that you, that, that don't mean you have to be in that environment in order to get it. So that that sounds like some good advice to me or, or questions that people could ask maybe if they're feeling stuck mm -hmm. or feeling a disconnect where they are right now or maybe where they think they want to go in the future. And I think it's 
I think it's one thing to have a conversation if you come from a background of there's an expectation that you'll perform or there's an expectation that you can do well. Mm-hmm. But what if you're what if you're new or maybe you're a recent college graduate or a high school graduate or you've just started in the last two years uh, working at what you thought was going to be your dream job, mm-hmm. but it's been virtual. So you don't feel a deep connection or a deep bond, or you're not finding mentors or sponsors. How do you, how do you think about your next steps or your agenda or your plan? How do you move forward when you're feeling stuck? Yes. Well, first of all, I think it's a couple of different questions that Mm -hmm. that you're asking. So let's talk first about somebody who's just started and you've been in this virtual environment. I actually believe, Carrie, that this environment has enabled people to build relationships in a way that is more equitable than when we were all in the same uh, space. Because I might have seen you speaking to Joe and you guys might have been talking about golf or skiing or something that has nothing to do with me. And I might have wanted to approach you, but I saw you guys talking and thought, us. I don't have anything to add to that conversation. It's going to be awkward for me to just stand there. So I won't go. So time after time after time, I never make a connection with Carrie. Interestingly enough, now everybody has to communicate this way. So my ability to communicate with you or to speak one-on-one with you is going to be a function of my initiative and my intentionality. Because now all I have to do is say, hey, Carrie, I really want to have a chance to connect with you. I've seen you on the Zooms, but haven't had a chance to introduce myself. I really enjoyed what you said at the last town hall. Can I get 10 minutes on a Zoom with you? And Carrie's not going to turn you down because every leader is trying to find a way to engage with their people in this virtual environment. So you're going to get your 10 minutes. And then when you get to nine minutes and 30 seconds, you say, I'm a woman of my word. I promised you 10 minutes. So I want to earn the opportunity to speak to you maybe a quarter or two down the road. This has been really great. One or two things are going to happen. Carrie's going to say, oh, no, no, no. I've got another five minutes if you do. Or she's going to say, absolutely, call my sister and let's get another time down the road. Now you've made the connection and you've also created perception in Carrie's mind. I'm a woman of my word. I promised you 10, nine and a half. We're going to cut it. So you have an opportunity to create those perceptions, to to engage in a way that might be more difficult in person. So that's with the person that's new and connecting with people. Set up virtual Zooms and coffees. Keep them tight, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, because you may not have 30 minutes of content, but everybody has 10 minutes of content, 15 minutes of content. Love that. Have a chance to do that. Now, if you're feeling stuck, now you need to spend some time thinking about what were my goals when I came into this organization? Why did I take this seat? Everybody, Carrie, needs to have an agenda. And an agenda has two pieces, the seat and the house. The seat is the job that you're prosecuting, and there are questions that go with that seat. What skills do I want? What experiences do I want? What kind of people do I want to meet? What kind of networks do I want to build? And there are questions that go with the house, where you're prosecuting the seat. Why did I join this company? Are their values aligned with mine? Do I have a voice? Can I get a sponsor? Do I like the career trajectory, the platform? Those are the questions you should have been asking when you joined the house. Now, if you're feeling stuck, go back to the agenda and see if the questions to the house still apply. If they don't, time to change the house. See if the questions apply to the seat. If you fully prosecuted the seat, now you just change the seat and stay in the house. And sometimes it means change the seat and change the house. But you have to go through that to get unstuck, if you will. 
So that is, that's such a wealth of advice there. And the, the naysayer in my mind then, or thinking about somebody who's taking all of this on board right now and just writing down notes furiously and going, oh my gosh, I never even considered thinking about it in that way. The next thing that my mind fills in is, well, what if I pick the wrong goals? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's where having a sponsor or a mentor comes in. Right. And I write about that you know, profusely in my first book, Expect to Win. The mentor is the person that can tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly because they know you. And the mentor's job is to give you tailored advice, tailored specifically to you and to your career aspirations. So I could not be a mentor to either you or Joe now because we're just meeting. Now I could be an advisor if either of you wanted to come into financial services because I've been doing it so long, I could answer any questions that you have about financial services. I can answer any question that you had about what are the first kinds of assignments you should have, how you should manage difficult bosses or or great personalities. So discrete questions are questions that an advisor can help you with. Questions that are personal to your personality, your strengths, your weaknesses, a mentor. And then a sponsor is something that you get when you're in the environment. So if you're already in the environment and you're trying to rechart your course and you're not sure if you're thinking about it the right way, speak with your mentor, right? And pressure test it. Or if it's within the organization, speak with the sponsor and pressure test how you're thinking about things. And it's always about how you approach it. So you don't wanna say to the sponsor, I'm ready to quit. But the way I would have the conversations, I said, Joe, you know, I've been here for eight years and I feel like I've learned a lot. I feel like I've contributed a lot to the organization, but I'm trying to think about how do I take it bigger? How do I play bigger? And here are the things that I'm thinking about that might enable me not only to grow, but enable me to make a bigger contribution to the organization. What do you think? And I would lay that out. But that's how you put the precursor around it and you can zero in on exactly what you want from that sponsor. That's fantastic. And part of the critical nature of having that sponsor and even the mentor relationship is that it is a relationship. It's not just picking up the phone and calling somebody and saying, will you be my mentor? And then making the ask. Mm -hmm. And I think that too often, uh, in my experience, I've seen people try to short track that Mm -hmm. or fast track it and skip that relationship development part, or even considering everything that you've brought up and and what matters to you, like what matters to me as a person so that when I go to that person that I'm hoping could be my mentor or my sponsor, that I can articulate my position cleanly and clearly so they know how to advocate on my behalf. That's right. I'm always a fan, Carrie, of giving somebody the script. So when you want them to go in and advocate on your behalf, and maybe you say, hey, Carrie, I know you guys are going to be making a big decision about who's going to run this department. And I really hope you feel comfortable sponsoring me in that conversation and speaking up on my behalf. I really want this position because of A, B, and C. And I think I will do a great job because of D, E, and F. And now if Carrie is already predisposed to speak up on my behalf, I've now given her the script. She doesn't have to think about it. She can say, I know that Carla really wants this because of A, B, and C. I believe she is ready um, because of D, E, and F. And here's what I think she can do in the role. Now is back to my script of G, H, and I. Right, right. Well, and what's interesting to me as well is that having that script or, or just having a couple of phrases or a couple of questions 
actually takes away some of your excuses or, or our own personal excuses of what do I do next? Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating to me about that is that whether that's from a personal development perspective or a professional development perspective or in your world and in your profession, how to invest in your future financially, right? And one of the things I know you've said is don't worry about being perfect, get started. That's exactly right. When we think about that, and I'm going to pivot a little bit here, but when we think about that from the financial perspective, Mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, let's start with in order to invest and grow your money, you have to get your money, right? And so I'm a big fan, Carrie, of making sure that you understand the market value of your seat. And every seat has a market value. And so often we are not thoughtful about that when we're negotiating to get into an organization. And if we find that we've negotiated poorly, then we're shy going back to where we started this conversation about asking for our worth. But every seat has a market value. It's factual. So don't be afraid of understanding and gathering what you're worth. Now, if you've gone through 10 years of your career, 15 years of your career, and you have not appropriately invested, then that's where I say get started. You know, maybe you don't have enough money saved or you don't think you have enough money saved to get a a financial advisor. Well, just join a mutual fund. Just get started. You know, I'll tell you one of the things I personally do to try to help people build wealth carry is as I see young mothers and I say, have you opened a 529 plan? And they're like, no, I said, well, I'm not giving that baby a gift until you open a 529 plan. And when you open a 529 plan, then I'll give the baby a gift good gift, you know, and I wink to get them started because that's one of the easiest ways that you can get young people engaged in investing. If somebody has not done it and they are 10 years away from retirement, you know, I'll introduce them to someone who's a financial advisor who might not take them on, but who might just tell them what they need to do at this point if you're 50 and you're thinking about retiring at 60 or 62 or 65 or 70. So just get started, have one conversation and then act on it. And then make a commitment that once a month, you're going to act on it. And acting could be reading another chapter in a financial management book. It could be having a conversation with a different financial advisor. It could be having a conversation with a girlfriend who you know has been investing and been financially or fiscally responsible. It means looking at your budget. That's a small step that can be scary. Looking at how you spend your money, right? And then Mm -hmm. really taking stock of what your needs are versus your wants. Understanding when you buy something, is it in response to something? Are you consciously or unconsciously engaging in retail therapy, which is real, especially during this COVID environment? We all have click, 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 and probably have a house full of things that we didn't intend to buy. Okay, forgive yourself, get over it, just don't do it tomorrow. That's right. And when I think about that, then, and you've had such great exposure to working with some of the most wealthy, most financially successful people and professionals in the world for decades now. So you have a huge, huge uh, bucket of experience here. What do you think some of their, uh, some might say top secrets. I don't necessarily think it's a secret. I think people just don't understand the, the way the ultra successful or even the ultra wealthy make decisions. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those that are self-made, because let's face it, mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of three ways that you can acquire your wealth. You can create it yourself, you can marry it, or you can be born with it, right? So let's take the last two off the table. Um, those who are self-made have been very conscious about their money very early. 
That's what I've learned. And they did not engage in conspicuous consumption early on while they were building their wealth. So these were people who were not wearing the latest brands. These were people who were not buying three and $4,000 plus pocketbooks or $850 or $900 shoes. And all those things are nice to have, but they did not wear their ability or wear their W-2. They were stocking away that money and letting it build early. Others started making investments early earlier than many of us, while some of us were in high school, they were buying this stock or that stock, even when people weren't talking to them about stocks. Others, you know, when their parents opened savings accounts or investment accounts for them, instead of asking for things, they would ask for a deposit, even if it was $50 or $100 into some of those accounts. And then they were very, very aggressive about buying real estate early, you know, just buying a building not knowing what to do with it or buying land. So a lot of the people that I know that are ultra wealthy today started off early with real estate assets. And then many of them became entrepreneurs, but were meticulous about putting the money back into the business to grow the business and aggressive about acquiring other businesses early on and not being afraid to get rid of things that didn't fit. Right. That plays into that that risk tolerance, right? As well as paired with the nonstop learning mm-hmm. and knowing that you have to stay curious and engaged, never feeling that I think most successful people, most, not all, I, I hesitate to generalize there a little bit. Yes, you're right. Never feel like they've arrived completely. Yes. You are so correct. I could, I could not agree more. And that a natural intellectual curiosity or the learned curiosity mm-hmm. um, is something that is common. You are right. Well, one thing that that I found interesting, and even I've I've listened to several podcasts, even that you run, Carla, for for years, uh, and I know you're a huge advocate in the entrepreneur space and the investment space, and access to capital mm-hmm. uh, for people who don't fit the majority bill, if you will, and conversations that are in the in the last twenty months, the last two years that have been revolving around the pandemic and social injustice even, I think I've seen from the outside have led to some action by companies and organizations, including Morgan Stanley, which is great. That's awesome. But as someone who's really seen it all, what kind of lasting impact do you think those conversations will have? Mm-hmm. Or, or do you think we're, we're seeing a short-term bounce here? Yeah, I have to tell you, I am more optimistic than that, Carrie. And, you know, this full disclosure, I'm a glass half full kind of girl. The reason why last year felt more like a movement than a moment is, number one, the number of companies that were coming out publicly making those commitments, because somebody's going to come back and follow up on whether or not those commitments were were actually made. So the fact that they exposed themselves by speaking, um, I think, is one of the contributors to a lasting impact. The second is that those companies who, the first set of companies who were the beneficiaries of some of that money were the ones that were already sort of at the top of the food chain, if you will, worthy of getting that capital, yet still having a hard time getting it. Now they got it. And so I think those companies are going to put some tremendous points on the board. Some of them will evolve into unicorns. Some of them will have amazing IPO and M&A exits and success begets success. And one of the reasons, you know, notwithstanding any other negative reasons that you could come come up with, and they are there, but one of the more more positive or constructive reasons, I would argue, that you didn't have money flowing into this space is that there wasn't enough experience and there wasn't enough data. 
So a traditional VC could say, well, you know, I, I haven't seen very many companies that have been founded by women. And, you know, we owe it to our LPs to make sure that we have, you know, top decile performance. And that means we have to stick to our knitting. Well, then you never venture out. So if you've never ventured with, you know, investing with a person of color or investing with women, then that means you never will if you got to, quote, stick to your knitting. And one of the things that we called out in one of our white papers uh, at Morgan Stanley in the Multicultural Client Strategy was every VC portfolio has at least 10 or 20 percent of it dedicated to expansion risk which means they invest in things that they have no background in, that they are learning about that's new. So expansion risk, think the cloud 20 years ago. Mm, think right? driverless cars 10 years ago. You know, think SaaS 20 years ago. People made investments in these Shoot. things. That's this year for some companies that are still trying to get their minds around that. Or cyber. It's that, a scary space for people that's because right. it's such an unknown. That's right. So we said, okay. You don't have any experience investing with people of color. You don't have any experience investing with women. Put that in your expansion risk bucket and go mm. do it, right? And that mm -hmm. called out and, and took away that excuse, if you will, in the market. So, you know, that's why I'm optimistic that we will be able to press on beyond this. That's a fascinating way to even uh, phrase that or term that, because on one hand, somebody could say, well, that's not fair, or they could go right into, I find that offensive. But if you're looking for a solution to solve, and they, claim they are. That's right. That's right. To solve for that, or you know, again, I I try to do both sides of this, or the pushback of whatever women or people of color. You know, we have to prove ourselves where other people get invested on the potential. Okay. Yes, and. <laughs> so I love that identifying that of going. Okay. Well, here's your solve. Put it in your your expansion risk bucket then. That's right. I love that. You know, Carla, it's it's interesting. It feels like yesterday to me, but in 2013, uh, President Obama had named you as a chair for the National Women's Business Council, which is such a powerful way to be recognized. So that was eight years ago. What would you say to women going into business or women going into finance? And I, I don't want to split the advice for being gender differentiated because I know your advice is very universal. So what advice would you give somebody who is interested in finance, going into finance or wealth management, but doesn't know where to get started? Yes, I would say if you are an undergraduate, be aggressive about looking for internships because the marketplace is definitely looking for you. So if you identify yourself as somebody who is interested, who is comfortable with analytical and quantitative concepts that you can learn quickly and that you have an aspiration or a fire in your belly, if you will, to really do well, no matter what you do, to attack it with excellence, then you're going to get a shot at, at some financial services firm and in some seat. The more uh, articulate you can be about which seat, if you want something on the wealth management side or something in investment management or something in investment banking, the more articulate and clear you can be about that, the more you heighten your, your chances in order to acquire one of those seats, if you will. I would also, by the way, highly recommend financial services as a space, especially right after college. It gives you the opportunity to learn so much in a short period of time because it is fast paced, it's dynamic, it's intellectually and experientially stimulating. And if you wanna go into wealth management, to be honest, one little known secret, Carrie, is that that's probably one of the best places to go if you want maximum flexibility in your career because you really are an entrepreneur 
as an advisor. Yes, you have to know about stocks and bonds. Yes, you have to know how to interact with clients and how to build a business. But if you have entrepreneurial aspirations and you're interested in finance, being an advisor is one of the ways to marry the two. For me, I was interested in the institutional side of the business, being a banker and advisor to companies and to governments, talking to them about fundraising or talking to them about acquiring assets, which is why I went on the investment banking side of the business. But if I had had entrepreneurial aspirations and I wanted to marry that with finance, wealth management all day long. Oh, I love that. And you know what? You, you wrap that up in the foundational principles of don't be afraid to take some risks. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about making mistakes. You're going to make some mistakes on this journey. Yeah. And you know what? At the end of the day, if you don't, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get okay. it. <laughs> right? That's chapter six of expect to win. You don't ask, <laughs> yeah. don't get that's What's right. the worst that can happen? Somebody says no, right? That's I try right. to I try to tell my kids and even gosh, some of the executives that I coach, if if there's if there's some pushback, you know, you look for the solution, you look for is there an expansion in the knowledge base that you need to make there or an investment in your own personal development? And then you just say, not yet, mm -hmm. and keep going. That's right. Right. Just right. keep taking those next steps. Yeah. Well, Carla, you've been such a gift today. Would you have just a minute to, I always like to ask just a handful of rapid fire, super of easy questions. Of course, I have the same tradition on my podcast where we, you know, we, we do this rapid fire at the end. So absolutely. Awesome. All right. Well, you are a very accomplished gospel singer. So this one may throw you for a loop or maybe it won't. What is your go-to music you listen to when you work out? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's a combination of R&B, soul, and gospel. So it depends on the day, and I do one or the other. Do you have your own Spotify playlist that's that's uh, out no, there publicly? Only my own. Everything on my Spotify playlist happens to be all of the songs that I've recorded. Oh, good. look at look at you advocating for yourself. <laughs> I love that. So, who do you think of as a mentor, and what did you need to learn from them? The one person that I, whenever someone asks me that question is another senior African-American female executive who I've known for almost 30 years, who just became my mentor because she, she was a friend. And as I tell people, don't overlook peer mentors because sometimes your peers can be your best mentors because they know you and they know the context that you're competing in and can give you that tailored advice that will help you to be successful. And she's, you know, five or six years my senior. So a lot of the things that I was approaching, she had already seen. Mm -hmm. um, and I trust the most important thing, Carrie, is that I trust this person that whenever I'm speaking to them, I know that there's one agenda item and it's me. They're not putting their their stuff you know, their experiences, the things that they're still seething over into the advice they're giving me. It is purely with blinders on about Carla. And that's one of the most important characteristics, I think, of a mentor. And that that trust piece and yeah. that whatever conversations you have definitely are going to stay between you, not out for public discussion, I think. That's, is, that's is, right. And right. the advice that they're giving you, they would have taken or they did take. And that's the one of the things I pride myself on as a mentor. I tell people, I am never going to tell you to do something that I haven't already done. I've already tested it. So I'm mm -hmm. not going to send you into uncharted waters. Right. And and even one of the things I think to what can be an unfortunate blip in some mentor relationships is there's a bit of a disconnect there where somebody is not willing to be vulnerable mm -hmm. or even share that they've made mistakes. 
right? Because they, they think that that path needs to look like it's perfect and that they've been infallible to be worthy to be a mentor. No, no. And if someone presents themselves that way to you as a mentor, then I'm going to tell you to rethink that right. person. Run away. <laughs> run away. That's Two right. words, just run away. That's right. Lesson release. That hasn't made a mistake, a misstep in their career. Nobody. And if Nobody. they present otherwise, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. red flag. For sure. What is the biggest misperception of you? That I'm tough to, to get to. That people will say, well, I, you know, I didn't know how to get to you, or I didn't think you would answer my call, or I didn't think you would answer my email. Just ask Joe. There you go. There you go. Joe's going to be on the hook for that. Yeah. Right. So last, last of the easy questions, we have $100, a full tank of gas, and the day off. Where are we going? $100, full tank of gas. And the day off, you know what? I'll probably go up to the church, especially if it's on a day where we're giving out food to the community. And first thing I would do if I if I couldn't stay is I'd give them that hundred dollars. And if I could stay, I'd give them the hundred dollars and pass out the food. Oh, best answer yet. That's awesome. Carla, you have definitely uh, taken the time to share some of your pearls of wisdom with us, which I am so grateful for. If people do want to get in touch with you or follow your journey, where can they find you? Absolutely. So I'm just at Carla Ann Harris on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, and you can certainly listen to Access and Opportunity, uh, which is our uh, podcast. And you can get me at CarlaPod at MorganStanley.com. Perfect. Yes. And that podcast is Fantastic. Anybody who's interested in even the investing world, venture capital, finance, anything, you put that thing, go out for a walk and you'll come back 52 miles later for sure. It's an amazing (laughs) podcast. Very well done. As is yours. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. And thank you so much for listening this week. If you enjoyed the show with Carla, please make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders, just like you, can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. They're super fun. And while you're at it, I'd love to hear from you personally on my social channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And of course, you can always find me at carrielorenz.com. Finally, don't forget to grab a copy of my new book, Span of Control. It's available on Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Target, Barnes & Noble, and always your favorite indie bookstore. I know it's going to be extremely helpful to you on both a personal level and a professional level, and it can help your family members, your friends, and the teams you lead or coach to identify their priorities, focus on what matters, and find success, even during times of chaos uncertainty and change. So thank you for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.